So tonight, uh, Daniel will be preaching from Hosea chapter 13, looking at verses 4 through 14. And then it'll be from the NLT version. There are Bibles uh, below your chairs. I believe they're going to be ESV versions. There might be a few NLTs. Otherwise, um, follow along on your mobile device. Um, and if you're new with us tonight, um, in your Bible, you'll find a um, table of contents, and you can find Hosea to follow along. So Hosea 13, verses 14, or, uh, 4 through 14. I have been the Lord your God ever since I brought you out of Egypt. You must acknowledge no God but me, for there is no other Savior. I took care of you in the wilderness, in that dry and thirsty land. But when you had eaten and were satisfied, you became proud and forgot me. So now I will attack you like a lion, like a leopard that lurks along the road, like a bear whose cubs have been taken away. I will tear out your heart. I will devour you like a hungry lioness and mangle you like a wild animal. You are about to be destroyed, O Israel. Yes, by me, your only helper. Now where is your king? Let him save you. Where are all the leaders of the land, the king and the officials you demanded of me? In my anger I gave you kings, and in my fury I took them away. Ephraim's guilt has been collected, and his sins have been stored up for punishment. Pain has come to the people, like the pain of childbirth. But they are like a child who resists being born. The moment of birth has arrived but they stay in the womb. Should I ransom them from the grave? Should I redeem them from death? O oh, death, bring on your terrors. O oh, grave, bring on your plagues, for I will not take pity on them. You guys hear me? Hey, sweet. Good evening, church. It is really good to be back with you. I am this nebulous uh, pastoral resident that we've been talking about all night. All night. My name is Daniel Simmons, and it is really, really good to have this opportunity to preach God's word. Um, I love getting to preach this book. And later, I'm looking forward to sharing uh, more of my heart for this church with you all. So uh, looking forward to, to more time. We've loved getting to know you, church, and we've been so thankful for this, this summer of, of residency. Um, let's jump right in. I, I just want to remind us how good life is. Isn't life so good? I was with my wife who just turned 25 today, uh, and yes, she is the love of my life next to Jesus, my greatest joy, and we were at the garden, the Rose Garden over at Lake Harriet, and I was just looking around, and life was just bursting from this garden. There were literally a hummingbird flew right up next to me, like next to us. Caitlin's like, look behind you, don't move. I turn and there's this hummingbird like right here. And everywhere you look, there's life. There's life. And I was meditating on the sermon today, which is a heavy one. It's titled, Death's Only Ransom. And I was just contrasting the two things, life and death, this, this garden that I'm experiencing, just just abundant life with this, this death-like wilderness that we're going to be learning about 
in Hosea. So let me just ask you to do something as, as we get in here. Um, why don't you turn to your neighbor and just share with them what you think is our greatest enemy in life. Just think for a second, turn to your neighbor, share with them what you think that might be. That, our, our greatest enemy. Let me tell you a couple stories that probably sound familiar to us all, and hopefully this will help us answer uh, the story what, or, or this question, who is our greatest enemy? Um, just this, this past week, guys, uh, death came close to, to several people in our family. Um, the Hassans lost one of, their, one of their children, an unborn baby with uh, so much potential life-taking for unknown causes. And we, we mourn with the Hassans this week. Ross lost his grandmother last week. Um, just a couple months ago, there was uh, two twins full of life, and they were driving on a Montana freeway, and at the point of impact, cut short. It was at the funeral just, just recently. My, my grandmother, just a couple years ago, she's old in age, but she still loved life. Every time you saw her, you could see how she loved life, and then her body failed her. Could death be our greatest enemy? Maybe this is what some of you said. Maybe I gave it away in the, the title of the sermon. But the Bible has, has something to say about death, and, and it's, a very, it's a very somber Thing. I'm not here to scare you today. I don't want to scare you in talking about death. But there are, there are people in our culture, I hear, I've heard it many times, who uh, just say, I, I'm not really, I don't think about death. I'm not scared of death. And I'm, I'm curious, how, how do we think about death? How does it affect you? How, how does it affect you when it comes close to you or to someone in your family? Death is, is how... We sentence the worst criminals in our nation. This is um, the thing that brings us the greatest fear, the greatest pain. And so I, I want to I talk today about how death is the penalty for sin. I want to show you from our text today that death is the penalty for sin. I want to show you more specifically that Israel's death, their punishment that they're about to experience is a result of their sin and their unwillingness to turn and repent. And then... I want to show you that, God's, that God holds the power of life and death in his hands. God holds life and death in his hands. He has the power to save. And I, and I want to offer at the end here some really good news for us. That there, God has provided a, ransom for death, provided a ransom from death. The, na- the main point of this sermon is Jesus is the only ransom from death. Jesus is is the only ransom from death. So chapter 13, I'm preaching from the New Living Translation because I think that some tricky language in this passage and I think that the, the New Living tra- uh, Translation really uh, helps us. So that's, that's why we're going there. We typically preach from the English Standard Version. Um, I think I'll have it up on the screen to so follow along there or just in your Bibles. Um, Israel's story, one more point before we jump in. Israel's story here in the text that we're reading sounds actually strikingly similar to Adam and the story of mankind moving forward. 
And so in, in the outline, I want to kind of compare Israel with, with Adam in the story of mankind. I also want to bring you into that story and also Jesus. So let's look up on the screen the, uh, the outline here. We're going to go verses 4 to 6. We're going to look at Israel's fall in comparison to the garden, or we could say Israel's garden uh, versus Adam's garden. Verses 7 to 9, we're going to look at Israel's wilderness and mankind's time east of Eden, outside of the garden. Verses 10 to 13, we're going to see Israel's false saviors compared to Babel and the human kings. And then in verses 14 to 16, we're going to see the culmination of Israel's disobedience, which is death, and ultimately mankind's greater death, which is, is their damnation. So let's go ahead and dive in here. Hosea is the last prophecy of judgment. Uh, we actually have only two sermons left in this book, and this, this is one more kind of promise finalizing what's about to come on Israel. Next week, there's, there's a much more hopeful call to return to God, but I want to remind you, even in the warnings that you're going to hear today, this is all a very merciful God extending his arms saying, I'm giving you chances, Israel. I'm giving you chances. It is a call to repent and to turn to him before it's too late. Um, I would just, I just want to pray real quickly for, for God's help. This is a tough message, so let's, let's just pray together. Father, thank you for your, your word. We just prayed that you would come and speak to us. So I invite you, Lord, to come and speak through me and come and speak and encourage those who are broken over death that's come near. Lord, stir up those who are kind of sitting uh, apathetic in their sin. We pray that you would do great work in us today, that we would ultimately exalt Jesus in great ways because of what you have accomplished. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. All right, verses four to six, Israel's fall. I'm gonna read it again. We just read it, but uh, follow along with me. I have been the Lord your God ever since I brought you out of Egypt. You must acknowledge no God but me, for there is no other Savior. I took care of you in the wilderness, in that dry and thirsty land. Here we see Yahweh reminding Israel, Yahweh, I'm using the word Yahweh, this is God, this is the covenant name for God, Yahweh, that he, he reveals himself to Israel. And, and he, he says to Israel, hey, I'm the one, remember? I'm the one who took you out of that that, in sla that slavery that you were in, in Egypt. I'm the one who brought you in the wilderness to Sinai and I made covenant with you. And I, I told you that you must know no other God than me. I am your one God. So the, t the first of the Ten Commandments is this commandment, you shall have no other gods besides me. And here we see uh, kind of an allusion to it and he's saying, you shall know no other God but me. You shall acknowledge no other God than me. What this is getting at is the, the intimacy of Yahweh's relationship with Israel. We, we have this kind of as a theme throughout Israel, this word, I'm sorry, throughout Hosea, this word know, and it's describing more than intellectual knowledge of God, more than intellectual acknowledgement of, of, of who God is, but, but more this relationship. It's a marriage. Yahweh has set apart a people for himself and called them to Complete devotion, single-hearted devotion, like a husband to a wife. 
Verse 5 shows the kind of husband Yahweh was. He was a very good one. It, it says in Deuteronomy 32.10, I want you to follow along with, that, with me there. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Guys, the, the apple of his eye for you young guys over there, it's like, it's like Israel is like the, uh, the lock screen picture on, on God's phone. <laughs> or, or like he's got, a, got him up on the, the screensaver of their computer. Um, maybe for, for some of the older folks, it's like the, the picture in your wallet of the person you love the most. You take them out sometimes. This is God's affection for Israel. He loves them and he has set his gaze on them. He has set his gaze on Israel, and he's faithful to them. He protects them. There's this image of him like a shepherd caring for them, bringing them into a place of protection where they can thrive and flourish in his care, just like Adam and Eve. They were placed in a garden. They were chosen. They were created and called to be in a single-hearted, uh, singly, singly devoted relationship with God. But how do they respond to God's goodness and generosity? Look at verse 6. But when you had eaten, the ESV says, when you had grazed, when you had grazed and were satisfied, you became proud and forgot me. They became proud. They had all they wanted. They were full and fat. They were like, this is a good life. This is a really good life. But instead of turning to God and saying, God, you're so good, they got proud. And, and like many of us, we're like, look at what, our hand, what my hands got me. Look how great I am. Have you ever done that before? It's, it's subtle, but oftentimes we catch ourselves, wow, like, I, I'm so proud. I don't even realize that I'm, I'm boasting in what I have. We do this, and Yahweh stands there, and he says, Don't you know I gave you everything you have, the life you have, the breath that you have. He says to Israel, the grain, the wine, the oil, it's all mine, and I hand it over to you. And what do you do? You use it to worship false gods. You use it for the Baals, it says in Hosea 2.8. They gave, but she gave all my gifts to Baal. And what happens as a result of this? This relationship that, that Yahweh has set up with his people, we've been talking about this week after week, it's severed. Sin breaks relationship. It breaks relationship. Just like Adam and Eve, when they committed sin, it broke relationship. God is a holy God, and he said, you may not be in my presence anymore. He's so holy that he set up a, a cherubim, a, a massive angel with a, a sword, flaming, that they cannot pass or they will die. They cannot be in the presence of the holy God. God drove Adam out of the garden in Israel now. Rather than being under God's protection and care, they, they enter a wilderness-like situation. This is our second, uh, second kind of spot in the story, the second point in the story. Israel's wilderness. Verses seven to nine, follow along with me. So now I will attack you like a lion, like a leopard that lurks along the road. 
like a bear whose cubs have been taken away. I will tear out your heart. I will devour you like a hungry lioness and mangle you like a wild animal. What? Have you heard any language like that? <laughs> Have you ever heard, reading your Bible, like that Yahweh's gonna tear out your heart, that God's gonna tear out your heart? That does not sound like the Sunday school pictures I saw <laughs> when I was growing up. Jesus with his lamb. We might, we might look at this and say like, how is this possible? How can we say right now that God is so loving and we see pictures of Yahweh saying to, to the people that he once cared for, I'm going to come on you like a wild beast and tear you apart. This is shocking language. It should shock you. It should, it should make you ask questions of who God is. God, how can, you, how can you do this? God has become not the protector, but a predator of Israel. Is God just in this? Well, verse 9 explains God's actions Go there with me. You are about to be destroyed, O Israel. Yes, by me, your only helper. The ESV says, you are about to be destroyed by me for or because you are against me, your helper. What Israel needed to understand is that he is jealous for his name. He is jealous for his purity and his, his holiness and he is jealous for his bride. And when Israel has committed adultery against him, when they have, they have turned away from him, he's saying, I'm going to turn you over to your sin. I'm going to turn you over to what you want, and it's going to destroy you. When sinners turn away from God, they're like children who want to resist their, the restraint of their parents and run into oncoming traffic. God is calling every command that he gives, every law that he lays down in the Old Testament is meant for our good. It's meant for our thriving and our flourishing. And when we turn from him, we're like kids running into traffic. And God says here, at some point he is giving up and he actually becomes the driver in this scene which is crazy oh if sinners understood what they were doing when they resist God he is intending in pain that you might experience right now if he is disciplining you for sin that you have committed he is trying to call you back to himself he doesn't ultimately want us to perish in our sin he, remember in, in chapter 6, verse, two, or verse 1, he says, For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. But now they refuse to repent. And what happens? It says that he is using Assyria, one of the foreign nations, to bring wrath against him. Isaiah calls Assyria, Yahweh calls Assyria, the rod of my anger. If we followed the history of, of Israel just a few decades after this prophecy, Assyria was going to tear Israel apart like wild beasts would tear sheep apart. Who will rescue them from death? 
this should be our question. Many of us know the end of the story, but when we read things like this, we should be saying, who is our rescue? What do I do? Look at verse 10. This is Israel's false saviors. Now, where is your king? Yahweh says to Israel, let him save you. Where are all the leaders of the land? The king and the officials you demanded of me. In my anger, I gave you kings. And in my fury, I took them away. If you know the story of the Bible, following along this, this kind of comparison of mankind and Israel, you would, you would remember the story of, of Babel, where the, mankind is struggling outside of God's presence. They, they gather together. They say, let's, let's build a city for ourselves. Instead of being fruitful and multiplying and following God's call to spread his glory on the earth, they say, let's, let's make a name for ourselves. What they're doing is they're, they're trying to create some sort of safe haven, some experience where they can be safe together. They, they, they're basically putting together a plan that has man right in the center of the, the salvation plan. Similarly, Israel, you know the story of, of Saul and Samuel. Samuel is the prophet. God is leading his people through the prophets and through his word, but then they say, no, Samuel, we want a, we want a king like the other nations. In asking for a king, Yahweh says they're rejecting not just you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. They said, give to us a king like the other nations. They're refusing to turn to God who is their help. Verses 12 and 13 continue to expose their foolishness. There's this really interesting image where Israel is described as a baby who's about to be born and as he's about to be born, he's like, nope, ain't going out. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's madness. But this is the madness that we're seeing. When sinners refuse to turn to God, their helper, they're asking for death. God is ready to deliver the baby, as it were. He's ready to rescue you from death. He's ready to deliver you. He's ready to deliver anyone who would turn to him. And yet, in turning away and running from him, we're refusing rescue. So who will rescue? Who is going to rescue? If, if Yahweh is the only one who can and we're refusing to come to him, what are we going to do? Verse 14, Israel's death. Should I ransom them from the grave, Yahweh asks. Should I redeem them from death? O oh, death! Bring on your tares. O oh, grave, bring on your plagues. For I will not take pity on them. This is terrifying to me to read these sort of words. God here is depicted as the one who can ransom. He says, Should I? Should I ransom them? Should I redeem them from death? But then instead of doing what he can, he says, death, bring them on. Bring on your plagues. Bring on the sting. He summons death to do its duty. This is crazy. This is a very familiar passage in the New Testament, and we're going to go there in a little bit. But this passage right here, the, this use of 
of those words, God summoning death on sinners, it just is, it is so difficult. So some of you might have Bibles that translate that text very differently. Uh, we, we, we've looked, we spent a lot of time this week uh, looking over this text, trying to understand the Hebrew, and man, don't you just love ancient languages? <laughs> They're so hard. So these, these uh, it goes both directions. Some of your Bibles might say, I shall deliver them from death. Well, that sounds very different, and it's almost... It's like, wait, where, God, where is this coming from? Like, you're, you're talking about judgment, 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 and then all of a sudden, I shall deliver them from death? Well, Hosea does do that. We've seen that in other passages where he's speaking of judgment, and then all of a sudden he's like, there's a remnant. They're, they're going to return to me. They're going to love me. However, the context of this passage, I think it's best to see this, this last statement, I will have no pity on them. I will have no pity on them. I will have no compassion on them. I think we need to interpret this not as a promise of salvation, though that will come in the next chapter, but as God's solemn warning to Israel, this is your last chance, and it is certainly coming on you. In fact, as we work through verses 15 and 16, we could have gone there, but it, was just, it would have been a lot to get through. Verses 15 and 16 make clear the exile that Israel is about to go into, and it's describing bloody warfare, barrenness, and death. Israel is headed for death. Church, it's so important for us to remember that this is not, this is not out of the blue. All of these things were penned in, in the covenant, and Israel wholeheartedly said, we'll do it. They signed on, off on it, as it were. They said, we'll do it. But Yahweh had said these words, Deuteronomy 8, and if you forget the Lord your God, if you forget, listen to these words from Deuteronomy, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord made, makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is a promise that, that Yahweh makes to Israel far before these days that we're, that we're reading right now. Yahweh is saying, if you do this, you're going to perish. And this is just like Adam and Eve, isn't it? He says, if you eat of that tree, you're going to die. Why? Why does sin require death? Why does sin lead to death? What the Bible teaches us is that God is the source of life. We talked about that earlier, the beginning. God is the one who gives everything that we have. He is the source of life. Just like that garden today, and the Garden of Eden, where God is, abundance just explodes. It's like water on good soil with good seeds just all of a sudden just explodes with life. This is why the tree of life was in the garden. It's depicting life in God's presence. But 
outside of the garden, outside of God's presence, outside of relationship with him, there's this barren land. It's a wilderness. It's, it's a place of death. It's the opposite, opposite of the garden picture that we see in the Bible and that I saw today at, at Lake Harriet. Absence from God, friends, is death. Absence from God is death. Don't you see that everything in life, the water we drink, the marriages that we enjoy, the friendships we enjoy, bread, food, all of these things are pointing us to our need for God. Every single one of them are showing us you were made for God, and apart from Him, you don't live. That's the whole Bible message. It starts from the beginning to end. It shows us that in God's presence in life, at the very end, when, when people are entering into God's presence and seeing Him face to face, what do we see? We see another tree of life, as it were, but there are abundance of them next to the river. There's water, life, garden everywhere. That's what this book is about, is giving you life. <laughs> giving people life. That's what we were made for, is to be in God's presence and experience his life. But we have all run from him, every single one of us, to Bible teaches. And we're told that this, this death, which is called Sheol, it's like this, it's like the Bible personifies him, makes, makes death into like a person who's coming to steal your life away. This death, God is saying, go ahead, do your thing, death. When we run from him, he gives us over to it. Again, God is the only one who has power to save. But who, who's going to save? Israel is about to perish in their sin. Every one of us are living a similar narrative. If you want to just compare us, we compare to Israel and Adam, and, and I just want to speak about you. Your life, God has given you life. He's given you breath. He's given you everything you have. And all of us have turned away from him and sinned against him. And God is just to summon death to come on you and destroy you. Further, he is just to punish us in our sin, a death that goes beyond what this life is. Someone here might say, Daniel, how can you say that? How can you say that my little lie, my little sin would require hell, would require me to die? I mean, how many times have, have your, your parents let you get away with far worse than a little lie? You know, and we have a hard time understanding this, don't we? Some of us say, you know, seriously, Daniel, I haven't, I haven't, I can't even, like, remember any sins, like, that this Bible's talking about. I can't remember anything like that. I've always been a Christian. Let me ask you a couple questions. Just test your heart. Have you ever grumbled before? 
Have you ever grumbled before God and complained? You realize that when we do that, we are, we are saying, God, I know better. I shouldn't be sitting in this traffic jam. What are you doing? Have you ever, in loneliness, turned to the embrace of someone that's not your spouse, or to pornography, or to books, or video games, or to what, you name it, food for comfort. All these things could be good, but they, they can become idols if we run to them as our savior. Have you tried to find escape in these things? In fear, have you clung to your insurance policy? or your government, uh, the elected politician of choice? Have you, have you clung to medicine, guns, your st- the stock market? In, I mean, all these things. In sorrow, have we cursed God and put him on the judgment stand, declaring that he's not good? In every single one of these things, whether big or small, no matter how subtle they, subtle they are, friends, we reject God. And Adam and Eve, how many sins did they commit before they were cast out of his presence? They commit one sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Death is coming on all of us. Every single one of you, it will touch you because sin has entered the world. All of us have sinned and we will all die but this doesn't have to be the end this does not have to be the end of the story in fact if we ended here with everybody every one of us dying with Israel dying I wouldn't be faithful to the word and we could say God you're not just you promised all these things God we, we might ask him, then, how did we get here? How do we get to, like, from a, from a God who's saying, like, I'm going to devour you and, and destroy you in your death to now, like, we always say to people, Jesus loves you. Even the worst sinners were, were saying to people, Jesus loves you. How is that possible? How can, how can we say Jesus loves you to, to somebody who, who has God's wrath coming against them? Well, here's the difference. God, God has not changed, friends. He's not different. He's not a God, you know, it's not the Old Testament wrathful God versus a New Testament loving God. No, the only thing that has changed is the nature of the covenant. The vows have changed, as it were. You see, the, the old covenant that, that was given at Sinai, Yahweh said, hey, you gotta follow these rules or you will die. We read that earlier. You have to follow these rules or you're going to die. So the blessing, blessings or life were completely contingent on whether they followed those rules or not. The new, te- the new covenant, however, the, the new marriage covenant, covenant between God and man, God, in his love, he said, I'm doing away with the law. Nobody will be saved if it's just the law. He was, he was training us under law. He helped us to understand what sin is and judgment. But what he was leading us to is salvation in Jesus. Jesus who put an end to the law. Jesus who brought in a new marriage covenant where anyone who put faith in him and believed in him would be set free from the curses of the law 
and would be offered the promise of blessing. How is this possible? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're, we're going to read Galatians chapter 4 4. Read that with me. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 1 Timothy 2, I want to just read one more here. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Here's how this happened. God, in his great love for you, didn't want you to die in your sin. He sent Jesus, his only son, who had been with him from eternity, he sent him to become a man. This is God. He's not in flesh before he comes to the earth, but he takes on flesh. He's born of a woman. He's born of a woman. He's born of a virgin woman. And he comes in and he lives under that law, Galatians says. He lives perfectly under that law so that we could be redeemed from the law. So that actually anyone who says, I believe in Jesus, you can say, I've, in Jesus I've fulfilled every command of the law. Not you, but Jesus. And then... Instead of taking, on the, taking the reward that he deserved for his perfection, what did he do? He jumped in front of the bus for us. He took the penalty that we deserve. He took the curses that we deserve. It says in the in scriptures that he took the curse of the law upon his body on the tree. This is absolutely crazy. I mean, we should seriously be asking different questions of God when we read scripture. We should not be asking things like, how can a loving God, how can a good God send people to hell? No, what we should be asking is like, how, how can God be good and send a sinner like me to heaven? When we look at Hosea and passages like we see today, we understand the severity of our sin, the severity of our rebellion, that it warrants death and God is absolutely just to give it. But Jesus, Jesus came in God's love. There's no question if God loves us. If God did not spare his son, how can we question God's love for us? How can we question his love for us? Let me continue with Jesus' story. Jesus died, but he did not stay in that grave Acts says that it was impossible for Sheol to hold him. Death had grabbed Jesus, but it was impossible. He broke free in the power of the Holy Spirit. God raised him up. There's tons of different descriptions. It says that Jesus rose, that he has authority to rise himself. It says that God raised him, the Spirit raised him. God rose from death. He conquered death. He got into the death that you and I deserve, the death that we see all around us that has touched our community this week, and Jesus conquered death. In the resurrection, he came up out of it. We just sang about it on that day. Death was swallowed up in victory. 
He carried our sins to the grave and he left them there so that we no longer have to fear death, so that we no longer have to receive the punishment for sin. We read that passage a minute ago. Jesus has made ransom for us. Let me, let me explain this idea of ransom briefly. A ransom, as we see in the movies and TV shows, or maybe you've heard on the news even, is, is what someone requires. It's a, it's a payment that someone requires for the release of a prisoner or hostage. All of us are hostages of sin. And the payment required for sin is death. If you want to live, you need death to be, to, you either have to die or somebody else has to die. And what we've just read is that Jesus was sent to pay the ransom. Jesus paid the ransom and he rose to life so that all who would believe in him might have everlasting life. This is the second half of that text I read earlier. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Apostle Paul, I want us to look at one final text, and I'm going to bring, bring this home for us. Writing in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the resurrection and how, how this, this resurrection has implications for, for our lives. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, he's speaking of the body, a mortal body, a perishable body, when we take on a new body that's imperishable, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is wild because Paul has just switched the meaning of this passage, whereas it was a summons to death to come on and destroy Israel, now it's like a taunt at death. Hey, death, where is your sting? Where is it? If you were in Jesus and you can honestly say, I don't fear death today, it's not because of your good works. It's because Jesus has conquered death, because Jesus has paid your ransom. But here's, the, here's the, the kicker. The outcome of your story, whether you live or die, is completely contingent on what you do with Jesus, what you do with who Jesus is. 1 John 5, 11 to 12 says, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So where do you stand? Do you have the sun today? That's the big question for us. Do you have the sun? If you're a Christian, if you're, sorry, if you're not a Christian today, if there's anyone in this room, we're so glad that you're here, that you're exploring, that you're, you're visiting with us, but you must turn. You must turn from sin and follow Jesus before it's too late, before not only physical death comes to you, but eternal death apart from God in hell. You don't have to die. 
Jesus died so that you don't have to die. So turn to him. Don't reject him. Be baptized. Believe in Jesus. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I need you. I want you. Save me. Being baptized and joining the church of God. And church, I have such good news for you today. We still struggle with sin. And this book that we're, we're wrestling through is... It's for your perseverance. On this side of the cross, if you're trusting in Jesus, we still see commands, flee from idols, church. Little children, flee from idols. But here's the good news. You've been empowered by the Spirit. You have become children of God, and He has come to live in you. It's not just you and the law and God standing back saying, Eh, you blew it again. I'm done with you. Jesus is, is there to empower you. This is why we meet together weekly to encourage one another, to point one another to Jesus. This is why we, why we gather in DNAs to confess our sin. But I would just urge you, if you are turning to false saviors in any of these ways today, I'm sure that this is true of some of us. If you're turning to false saviors, I just want to please call you, or urgently call you. Stop. Don't, don't repeat this narrative that we just walked through. Don't forget God in your comfort. That's why we gather together, that we would not forget what God has done. Just one quick uh, I guess, challenge for us. I, I, as I read about the severity of death and what's coming on us, and I see how people are dying regularly around us, I, I've just felt this sense of urgency again at the, our need to go and preach the gospel to the lost. There are people dying all around us. We must not be deceived. Life feels good in Minneapolis most days, but people are dying in their sin. There are people across the seas and in our backyards that will not meet Jesus. They will die in their sin and face his wrath. And God wants to use you. Young people, all of us, church, he wants to raise you up to use you to preach this good news. Friends, church, we have the cure for death. Everybody wants it. Everybody needs it. People might say, I don't, I'm not afraid of death. When it comes down to it, I assure you they will be. God was Israel's only hope of salvation and they rejected him and it brought on death. And the same is true for anyone who rejects him. But here's the good news. I've said it all throughout this. Jesus is our ransom for death. Jesus is death's only ransom. So I would just call us all to cling to him again today. We're gonna worship in these next few minutes. And I know that some of us have deep pain over death, lost loved ones. And I just wanna remind us, death will soon be swallowed up in victory. He will wipe every tear from our eyes, church. He will come again. He will come again for us. And we will no longer mourn. Death, we will be saying to death, where is your sting? Where is your punishment?